Good Saturday morning, everyone, and welcome to Counterbalance Radio, a progressive Christian talk show here on KZUM Radio. I am Richard Randolph, one of your co-hosts for this program. As always, uh, my co-host for the Counterbalance is Beth Mendhusen. Beth, welcome back to the, the, the uh, show. Beth and I are both pastors at Christ Connection Point here in Lincoln. Good morning, Richard. Today, we're going to be talking about racism, how we should think about it as Christians living in America in the 21st century, and why it's important that we address it. We'll be talking with another pastor from here in Lincoln, Reverend Brandy Jasmine Mimitsreum, who currently serves at Quinn Chapel AME Church here in Lincoln. Welcome, Brandy. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. We have a lot to discuss this morning. Beth Mendhusen and I are co-host of Counterbalance. We're also both pastors at Christ Connection Point United Methodist Church, one church with two locations at 4538 Street as well as 1333 North 33rd Street. That's at the corner of 33rd Street and Star. Uh, Both churches here in Lincoln. You can find links to information about both locations at our church's uh, new website, uh, uh, counterbalancekzum.com. At Christ Connection Point, we strive to welcome, include, and affirm all people, whatever their ethnicities, economic classes, genders, or sexual orientations. We recognize that all people are created in the image of God and loved by God for who they are. That's right, Beth. And our topic for this morning centers around matters around matters of justice and of inclusion. We're going to be talking about racism with our special guest, Reverend Brandy Mimics Ryman from Quinn Chapel AME Church here in Lincoln. Welcome, Brandy. It's good to have you on the show with us today. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, Racism is a tragic and complicated topic for anyone in America, but I think especially for Christians. We touched on this a little bit in one of our shows this summer when we discussed uh, the nuances of doing mission work. Uh, But for for the first many centuries of Christian history, white European Christians tortured and subjugated people of African and Native American and other indigenous descents in the name of converting them to Christianity. Um, Now, uh, while some so-called Christians um, continue this history of racism and subjugation, I think most progressive Christians are trying to be more active in confronting and addressing the racism in our past and present. But there's a lot of questions about how we can best do that work, what it looks like. To help us explore this topic, um, we've invited Reverend Brandy from Quinn Chapel here in Lincoln. Uh, She's someone with uh, many qualifications. Absolutely. uh, Who is committed to doing doing justice work and crossing boundaries uh, of of race and class and and, uh, gender, sexual orientation. Brandy, thank you for being with us again. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your career path? Um, Absolutely. Thank you again, Beth and Richard, for having me. I um, was ordained an elder in the AME Church in 2003. Um, I'm a graduate of the University of Missouri-Columbia with a BA in Sociology, Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois, with a Master's of Divinity and a Master's of Theological Studies in Theology and Ethics, and an MPhil, Master's of Philosophy from Jew University in Madison, New Jersey, um, and am a perpetual candidate for <laughs> for the PhD, uh, looking at womanist and feminist theologies and the theological methods behind them. Um, I've pastored in Utah, Kansas, and now Nebraska. I've served in churches in Denver, Chicago, and Orange, New Jersey. Um, yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> wow, that. That's quite a resume. It's very, very impressive. And um, uh, wish you well in terms of finishing up that dissertation. <laughs> and uh, I can't wait to, to, to read it. Um, please tell us a, a little bit, Brandy, about your congregation here in Lincoln, uh, Quinn Chapel. Um, the Mighty Quinn, or Quinn Chapel, is uh, 150 years old this year. Mm-hmm. Um, we are an increasingly diverse community. Um, we welcome everyone, love everyone, and affirm everyone. I think that is our, our new tagline. Um, I've been the pastor here for a full year now. 
Um, actually, 13 whole months. I'm really excited about that. Um, and we are growing and changing and, and learning each other and how to be in community and what that looks like. Great. Well, congratulations on your first anniversary. Thank you. Oh, we're located on 9th and C. Right. Yeah. We need that. And I always, I notice uh, Quinn Chapel when I drive by because you have like a lovely sign that's painted rainbow colors. We do have so a big rainbow sign. That makes you noticeable, which, which uh, is great. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about um, the history of the AME Church? So we're, we're United Methodists, and we're related to the it's African Methodist Episcopal Church. Right. Um, so we're, we're siblings uh, denominationally. Um, but the AME Church, I think there's been a lot of great social justice advocates that have come out of that church. Um, it has a rich history. Could you just give us a little bit, the, our listeners, a little background information? Absolutely. Um, the AME Church was started... Uh, in 1776 in Philadelphia, um, I think its roots, our roots, our social justice, are uh, looking at how to engage the community in freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones walked out of a then Methodist Episcopal Church mm-hmm. in Philadelphia um, and started the Free African Society. And from that came the AME Church, whose actual founding date, uh, the first general conference, uh, is 1816. Um, the work of the AME Church throughout the years has been not just anti-racism, but um, anti-sexism. And we've had a lot of people who are on the forefront of those things. So we claim as members um, lots of revolutionary persons. Um, mm-hmm. Like the, the congressman, this representative who just passed, Elijah Cummings, was AME. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people throughout history who have been AME who have also done social justice work. Part of who... What, we are and what we do and the mission for the church and the vision for the churches in our discipline is actually working towards the full inclusion of all people. And when we do it well, we do it really well. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah, I think that's most of the history. Okay, uh, great. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I've been a lifelong admirer of the AME church. I've been a lifelong United Methodist, um, uh, but... Um, really respect uh, the AME Church and its history and, and all that, that the uh, denomination continues to do. Um, but, Brandy, this morning we, we especially want to talk about an issue that plagues our country, that we believe Christians and other persons of faith should be especially concerned about, and, and that's racism. Uh, we know that you're a Christian leader in Lincoln, and uh, that you're especially concerned with inclusivity and anti-racist work. So what do you believe is the responsibility of Christians when it comes to confronting racism? I think that's an interesting way to parse that question. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the responsibility of Christians is the same across Christianity. Right. I think that part of what we have to do is to be careful about including difference mm-hmm. and to be okay with with saying what is the responsibility of black Christians, what is mm-hmm. the responsibility of white Christians, because we don't all have the same responsibility. Um, that said, I think what the church universal can do is to admit that it played a role mm-hmm. in creating the racist systems that we have now. Mm-hmm. I like to call them kiriarchy because I think it, it, the systems of oppression includes all of the class and the gender and all of that when we think about it as who is trying to pretend to be God. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that when the church universal actually says, yes, this is a byproduct of our bad theology, this is a byproduct of, of what we are doing in the world, then we are able as individual congregations, we are able as individual Christians to look at ourselves and the role that we're playing in continuing that bad theology, continuing those horrible systems that created it in the first place. Mm. Right. Those are some good insights. Uh, I think you sort of touched on this I was as I was thinking more deeply about the interview this morning, I was reminded of a book that uh, we did as a, a Lenten study um, at Connection Point last spring. And uh, it was called White Fragility. And so we were a bunch of white people sitting around reading a book about white fragility. Um, and the author started out the book um, talking about how some readers or people that would start reading it and quickly put it down um, would be like really offended that she was using the term racism or calling certain people, you know, maybe calling them racist. And to sort of 
parse that out. She said, um, you know, people, when you say that word, you know, racist or racism, people take it as like this personal affront, like you're calling them bad people. Um, and she wants to say that there's a, there's, we have individual acts of prejudice and people do those, may or may not do those on different, different points. Um, but then racism, she says, like sexism and other forms of oppression occurs when a racial group's prejudice is backed by legal authority and institutional control. Which um, when we talk about the church's contribution or the, the white church's contribution to racism, um, that I don't, to some extent, maybe we, we, the church has cultivated individual acts of prejudice but also the institutional control piece and the authority um, that the church sort of gave to people's prejudice, um, I, I think is, is where it's, we've perpetuated um, racism in the past. Um, could you, I mean, you have thoughts on that, Brandy? I do. Yeah. I think uh, giving power to those prejudices absolutely is how we... Mm political power and socioeconomic power is mm -hmm. how we actually participate in racism. Mm -hmm. But I also think her definition lets people off the hook. Oh, okay. um, as individuals, we absolutely participate in systems of oppression and mm -hmm. it's a conscious choice that we make. And when we say, okay, racism is not about my individual behaviors. It's not about my individual thoughts. It's just about the power structure. Then we don't have to look at how we're participating in the power structure. Mm -hmm. And when we're not confronted with our own behaviors and we're not confronted with the impact of our own choices, the impact of our own dollar and how we're actually moving and working in the world around us, then we don't have to work harder mm -hmm. to dismantle systems of oppression. Yeah. That's... I want to I wanna go back to a term that you use, bad theology. Could you elaborate on that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so my my advisor would be very upset with me for saying bad theology because there is technically no such thing as bad theology. Mm -hmm. um, so theology in and of itself is the way we speak about who God is for us mm -hmm. um, or who God is in our midst or how we understand God, right? Right. Um, and so when I use the term bad theology, I'm talking about theologies that posit human beings as God. Theologies that allow humans to look in the mirror and see themselves as God in order to stratify human nature, right? To, to be able mm -hmm. to say there's a hierarchy and who is closer to God and who is further away from God. Um, and, and I think historically in the academic study of theology, um, people like James Cone and Dolores Williams have talked about this in a different way, a much more polite way, um, which is why my dissertation is written, um, and have talked about the, and have pushed back on right. some of the classically white theologies who have spoken of God in such a way that God is a white man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so for me, I'm, when I say bad theology, I'm specifically talking about theologies that have not done the work mm -hmm. to, to insist upon a radical distinction between humanity and God such that the church is still able to draw a correlation between who's ever in leadership and God and then to participate in oppression in that way. Okay. Thanks. I'm, I'm processing that at the moment. So, yeah. So when we, so then I think the, the idea of the Imago Dei is something that we talk about quite a bit. How would you articulate that then in light of, um, in light of that bad theology that can. Okay. So the Imago Dei is the image of God within us. Mm -hmm. Right. And right. I, I think that what happens in, eh, especially modern liberation progressive theologies, is that we see the image of God within us and think that we are then mirror images of God. Mm. And what happens is that gets reversed, right? Oh. So then God begins to look like whoever oh, we are. Okay. And we find God within ourselves and she looks just like us and she would agree with us mm -hmm. and she has the same concerns as us and everybody who is not like us then is removed from the image oh. of God. Mm -hmm. And we ourselves have a... Uh, what is the word I'm looking for? A stronghold on mm -hmm. the divine being mm -hmm. that removes the image of God from other people. Um, and so for me, when I'm talking about we are made in the image of God and that we have to a responsibility to honor and protect 
other people's made in the image of God. And that mm-hmm. means that it's not just us. Right. The image of God isn't a black woman. The image of God isn't a white man. The image of God is is above and beyond that such that it can be found in all of us. And our responsibility to do anti-racist work, white Christians' responsibility to do mm-hmm. anti-racist work, is to divorce the image of God from whiteness mm-hmm. so that, that you can look at me and see the image of God clearly mm-hmm. without then dehumanizing me. Mm-hmm. And making me into some ooh, strong black woman ideology that that absolutely um, de-identifies me with who God created me to be. Okay, that's great. That's interesting. Profound. I think um, Beth and I uh, at uh, Christ Connection Point use the words "image of God" a lot, um, but we use it more to say everyone is created in the image of God. Uh, all, we're all children of God, regardless of those mm-hmm. categories, those human categories that um, that that humans impose, you know, to categorize ourselves and differentiate ourselves. And racism would be a, a category. Um, and so we're trying to break down those categories by saying that every single human person is created in the image of God, which means that God is. Uh, trying to, uh, that God seeks a loving relationship with all people and that all of us are, in a sense, brothers and sisters in, in Christ. So it's a different way, maybe. And uh, then there's like a, there's a nuance there too, because I want to say that we shouldn't say we're creating the image of God regardless of what separates us, but be, it's our differences, it's our uniqueness that that, that is part of that. Like, Right. Uh, yeah. And that's what I was going to say too. It's It's not in spite of our differences, but all inclusive of our differences. Right. And right. when we are able to image God as imaging, as all of us being inclusive in the image of God mm-hmm. um, and include our differences, then we're able to break down some of those barriers that I think um, reify, to use that word, uh, systems of oppression like racism and karyarchy. Mm-hmm. I think, so hearing you talk about... Um, the image of God helps me understand your dissertation title a little better, even from when you explained it to me before the show. Um, so the, the title of your thesis uh, is she found her dissertation is she found God in herself, rethinking the theological methods of womanist and feminist theologies. And I think after your last like, couple statements ago, you want to say that we shouldn't find God in ourselves. We should... I think when we, I'm trying to use layman's term as much as possible, <laughs> when we find God in ourselves, when we look within ourselves mm-hmm. and image ourselves as God right. and do not have that distinction between who we are and who God is, that right. we obliterate the being of God and we don't hear from God clearly enough to be able to speak about God, mm-hmm. then we're just speaking about ourselves. Okay. Um, and so what I want womanist and feminist theologies to do is to, to consider that God is wholly different from humanity mm-hmm. um, and to really rethink the way that we approach constructing theology such that we are not saying of ourselves and not those who are less privileged than even womanist and feminist theologians mm-hmm. are, are womanist and feminist that you have somewhere to go to reach the image of God. And I think, excuse me, I think what happens when we find God in ourselves is that we absolutely say to those who are less privileged, those who are pushed further to the margins, that God is not within you. Mm. And so what happens in the academic study of theology is that we're constantly recreating theology, liberation theology, to include this group, to include this group, to include this group, because we have constructed God into a box. Mm. That is who we are. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in order to reconsider that, to, to remove God from the being of my being Mm -hmm. um, and to see God as God, God's own self, such that we all can be liberated. We have to move beyond the, the, the hubris of humanity um, Mm. that comes with, with, with theology, honestly, to, to want to speak of ourselves first and God second. Mm -hmm. I'm a Bardian. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. You said that. uh, I I saw that about you somewhere. Um, Actually, I want to. I'd like to ask you about that. What, when you say I'm a Barty, and what what does that mean? <laughs> um, I, also, my advisor would get upset about that too because he says there are very few pure Bardians. Um, I 
am trained. First of all, for yes. our, our, our listeners, let's just say that uh, Karl Barth was a uh, uh, German theo- theologian uh, in the mid-20th century. He wrote uh, theology and taught theology and pastored, uh, especially after World War II. And um, he's been very profound uh, for Western Christianity. Um, and um, I, I would characterize, well, no, I'm not going to characterize. I'll let you characterize Bart, uh, Brandy. Uh, um, why don't you take it from there? <laughs> so Bart was a Swiss theologian who studied in Germany okay. and whose theology was really formed and shaped by the rise of Hitler and Nazism. So right. I would characterize Karl Barth's theology as um, anti-white supremacist. Um, he characterized it as evangelical. And the evangelical that he meant and the evangelical that we have are opposites. Totally different things. Um, yeah. yep. And honestly, what he was arguing against in the dogmatics, both the church dogmatics and the Gottingen dogmatics, is exactly what we have in American theology right now. Um, when I, to answer your question, call myself a Bardian. Um, it's not just that I'm using Bart to write my dissertation, theoretically, if I'm writing, um, but also that when I am considering how to move and how to preach and, and what it means to be in community, that a lot of my answers are drawn from Bart. But also, um, one of the things that Bart said is that theology must be done within a community, right? Mm-hmm. Like we don't mm-hmm. have the ability to write theology isolated. Um, so he was a pastor first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of my theology is informed by the work that I do with the people both here and in Kansas and even some in Utah because theology must be organic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I agree with Bart. So that also makes me Bartian. Mm-hmm. And he's got some issues, I think, when he gets to his um, anthropology to how he thinks about humanity that I th- I think that he placed too highly of... Uh, importance on his own culture and what it meant for him to be a man in um, Europe at that time. But I think that his method, his theological method, and even his conclusions theologically um, are the roots of what we need as Christians to begin to dismantle uh, Mm -hmm. the systems of oppression and the way that we've constructed ourselves into uh, white supremacist ideologies in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, just an interesting point about that. Um, Latin American liberation theologians, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, uh, because Bonino, uh, and all of those um, would be Bardian in the sense that they uh, felt that they needed to write their theology out of the context of the community of faith. Mm-hmm. So um they saw themselves more as spokespersons for liberation theology that was coming from the people Mm -hmm. rather than as academic theologians writing from their their libraries. And uh, so it's an interesting parallel there, I I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, um, Brandy, I'm just going to share with you uh, something I've been thinking about during our conversation. And um, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I can articulate this well because it's just some new thoughts that I've been having. Um, but I've, uh, and I haven't done enough re- reading, uh, so I probably shouldn't go here, but I am anyway. Um, Beth's shaking her head no. <laughs> uh, in, in, uh, in Orthodox theology, there's this idea of uh, the, the theokos. Theosis. Theosis, the idea that as we grow in our faith, we become um, like little gods, kind di- of divinized. Yeah. yeah. So, would you see that? What's just your first reaction to that? Because I've been sort of thinking about what you're saying, and then thinking about what I've been reading, and it seems like that it may be a um, direct conflict. It is a direct conflict. Um, I think my initial reaction was, oh, God, no. (laughs) Um, I think as we grow in our faith that we should see the difference between who we are and who God is, both Mm -hmm. in how we operate and how God operates, right, and how we we live and how God lives. Those are in hyper quotes. Um, Mm -hmm. I know as as I grow in mine, 
And one of the things that I struggle with is understanding the difference between the things that Brandy can do and the things that God can do, mm-hmm. right? Like we're not, we don't have the same capabilities. There are things that I want to be able to do and it stresses me that I can't do them. Um, like I want to be able to control things and, and make sure things happen the way that they're supposed to happen. But absolutely, yeah. I'm a whole human being. I'm not God. Right. Um, and God is God and I am not. That's Bart 101. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I think as we mature in faith that we're able to see the radical distinction between humanity and God. And, and I think the notion that mature faith would conflate the two. Um, it's idolatry. Um, part of what Bart insisted is that we alone cannot see God. We can't even approach God to know God, except that God speaks to us, except that God has shown up in the person of Jesus Christ and said, here I am. This is who I am. This is how you are able to know me. And I love you so much that I want you to know me. I want you to know how we are different. I want you to know that I walk with you. That's that's who God is. Mm-hmm. And so to say then that the closer that I get to knowing who God is, the more I see that I am God. Well, I'm not sure it's... Or maybe like God. Uh, yeah, it's not, I think there's some <laughs> nuances still, in there. Yeah. It, it, it kind of obliterates the, ne- the necessity for Jesus and kind of creates little gods. I don't, I'm not quite sure. And, and I think I'm not quite sure how that's Christian. Okay. Um, I have other issues with Orthodox theology um, <laughs> and, and, and it might run parallel to that, but offhand, it would, it would absolutely sound like the goal there is to recreate Jesus within ourselves. And either the Christ event was singular or it's multiple. And if it's multiple, then it's pretty scary. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, uh, we need to take a station break uh, right now, Brandy. But uh, before we do, I don't know if you've ever heard this um, saying about about Bart, this story about Bart. Um, but um, apparently, at one point in time, he was uh, in the United States touring and giving lectures. And, and for our listeners, I, I just want to say that Karl Bart was the most prolific theologian, I think, uh, in the history of the Christian Church. He wrote volume after volume after volume, and Brandy's rolling her eyes here. <laughs> yeah. she does. Uh, so, you know, you could spend a whole year reading Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics and just doing that, I think. And maybe you've done that, Brandy. Multiple years. <laughs> Multiple <laughs> years. Uh, but at any rate, at the end of a lecture, someone asked him, um, they said, well, you know, you've written so much. How could you summarize all that you've written? And... Uh, with a twinkle in his eye, uh, Bart is reported to have replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Um, which I, I think really sort of <laughs> captures the, the essence of his theology and a little bit about his personality and about who, who he was. Um, a phenomenal theologian. Um, You're listening to KZUM 89.3 FM and KZUM HD. Welcome back to Counterbalance Radio here on KZUM. We're continuing our conversation with Reverend Brandy Mimics-Ryman, uh, <laughs> who uh, currently serves at Quinn Chapel here at, in Lincoln. This morning, we're discussing our Christian responsibility to uh, address racism in our society. Uh, Brandy, we, we've talked a little bit about Christianity's troublesome past with racism. We talked about some of the... Um, kind of your theological grounding that helps you, you know, conceptualize um, this, this topic. And you mentioned something um, in our first, after our first question that I, I think kind of points to, um, you know, another question that I, that I had for you, which is, and it sounds like the answer is yes. Um, are there situations where you think people of different races, you know, white people, black people versus you know, Native American people should, you know, do their own work within their racial community? I think that's something, I don't know, sort of popular, uh, I don't know, neoliberalism maybe um, says, oh, we should just all be together and, that's how we, you know, combat racism is just by treating everybody the same, you know, equality versus maybe equity, um, treating everybody the same, you know, being quote, you know, colorblind is problematic. Another question alluded to that. Um, but 
I, I think I know your answer, but do, 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 what do you think about, you know, doing your own work um, within your community and within yourself? I, I think you're right about my answer. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm reminded of Audre Lorde's, uh, we can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. And, and that response to Mary Daly was absolutely about her, Mary Daly's feminist need to obscure differences within mm-hmm. the feminist um, mm-hmm. movement mm-hmm. at that time. And I think when we're talking about racism and we're talking about how to think about and look at the way the, the church's history with racism mm-hmm. And also how it's working in the present, too. Cause I don't want to forget that obscuring the differences in our communities and, and the way we approach it and the way we think about it, um, I don't think does anybody any good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just from the black pastor perspective that every community needs to work on its relationship to anti-blackness. Um, black church, white church, uh, Hispanic church, native right. church, everybody needs right. to work on their relationship to anti-blackness, but I think we also all need to look at how we participate in white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't do that if we don't actually look at the differences between us. I think that need to conflate everybody's identity into one thing um, kind of underscores white supremacy mm-hmm. because then the dominant universal, historically universal narrative becomes that one thing into which we're all conflated. Um, and that absolutely means that we don't, that we negate the image of God in the other. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah, right. Uh, very insightful. And with that being said, um, I'm stealing Richard's question. Go ahead. But how do you see, so, so obviously, you know, I, you're saying it's helpful to do our own work. We need to do our own work. When do you see it as being important to partner across racial boundaries? Uh, is there an example of a time that maybe you've done that with your community that's been good? Um, <laughs> I, I pointed my hands out. I, I think the way that we work across racial boundaries in order to partner together to, to dismantle racism, to dismantle all of oppression, um, is to actually listen. Mm-hmm. And it's not listen to each other as, I don't know who says that, neoliberals, or I'm not quite sure. It's, it's for the privilege to listen to the oppressed and mm-hmm. to to, to be invited to the table to actually sit back and hear what the needs are, hear how they are impacted by these ideologies, hear how um, the oppressed are saying, this is what we can do. So in, in this situation, when we're talking about racism in America, um, it's absolutely white Christians being willing to shut up, sit down and listen to how other people, not just Christians of color, but people of color, regardless of faith, mm-hmm. um, are impacted by white Christianity in America, by white theology in America, and what it would look like to be freed from that. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess this is an example of when I did that. Yeah, well, thank <laughs> you. We really appreciate you taking the energy to be here with us in this thank space. You for the um, um, could you? I guess I want to hear. Like, um, sounds like you have a vision of what it looks like to be freed. Can you? Um, are you willing to share that with <laughs> us a little bit? Um, uh, Freedom, liberation, I think, in this country has had different images mm-hmm. um, over the last oh, 300, 400 years. And, mm-hmm. and part of it, I think, historically has been we want to be free to do exactly what the white man does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's been across all of the oppressed groups, right? White women want to be free like the white man. Black men want to be free like white men. Black women want to be free like white women. Um, and I, I think that liberation has to be the ability to be free, to be who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, that all of us have the, uh, the accountability for how we treat people and how we walk and how we, how we participate in, in systems that destroy each other and um, obliterate and, and try to recreate each other in our own image. But that I need to be free to be the black woman that I am. Like you need to be free to be the white woman that you are. And we need to be able to do that and have same access, same accountability um, and same responsibility to each other. And for me, the only way that we can get there is to actually hear what it would take to get there. Um, Part of what I'm looking at right now in society is how progressives are talking to each other about the candidates that are being offered for the election. And there's a whole lot of, no, seriously, this is what your community needs. Mm-hmm. Um, you really need to listen to him because he will free you guys. Like, and, and there's, first of all, 
you can't tell somebody else how they're going to get free, right? Like mm-hmm. that has to has to be told to you what freedom looks like from their perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and second of all, if you're not actually listening to the communities and not just to the one person of that community that you happen to be friends with, but you're not listening to the organic writing and words that are coming from the communities that talk about what they need. And this is whether you're friend of a person or pro candidate or the candidate themselves. And you don't have the ability to say, oh yeah, this is what it takes to get free. And I would say that for every single one of the candidates. Um, Cause I don't know that any of them have an organic relationship to any community that needs to be free from oppression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a mm-hmm. good observation. I think, I think we do that in the, in the, in theology as well, like in the institution uh, you know, well, I don't know. That's one uh, critique of like seminaries. I think across time. by institution you mean seminaries, not yeah, maybe churches. some in to uh, more in academia, the okay. church academia, mm-hmm. maybe than in the congregational life of the church. Um, I, that's one I think you know time tested critique of seminaries is that we it's so isolated from the community. Like we're, we're thinking really hard, kind of like political candidates are, are thinking hard about how to fix the problem. And we're not talking to the people that are experiencing the problems and asking them what they think. I would say that of the church too. Uh, I was just going to say that sounds like the church to me. Yeah. With people that are without outside of the church. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, a failure of institutions Mm -hmm. and I might be more neighbor with that. Um, but I also think it's it's how we as a society have thought about the intellectual work mm-hmm. um, and have thought about what it means to be in power. Um, and we, I don't know if it's inherited from other structures or inherited from other systems, but we really have isolated power from the community such that mm-hmm. it's not organic anymore. And I think at some point we had um, like grassroots movements mm-hmm. And things that were bubbling up from the bottom, mm-hmm. um, but we've returned to a real top-down type leadership, and it doesn't actually do the people any good in any institution. Right, I, I would agree. Um, so, how do you, um, you know, in your in your bio on the website, uh, your church's website, um, you talk about you know wanting to build establish relationships between the church and the community, which it sounds like it is really essential for doing um, doing good theology. <laughs> How do you, how do you how do you establish those relationships? Um, how do you get involved in the community and and put yourself in situations where you can listen? Um, I don't think it's me. Um, okay. I, I think my job as a pastor is to encourage the church to get involved with the community, such that the community is represented in the church. Okay. I think what happens as pastors is we say, okay, this is who I am and this is what we're going to do and we're going to do it for the community. I'm going to do it all myself and I'm going to take it on my back and then I'll be, the church will be represented in the community because I'm there. Mm. And um, that's a, a level of hubris and a level of, of inescapable human self-aggrandizement. Like, mm. I, I think pastors think way too highly of ourselves personally. And, and when we believe that we ourselves can represent the entire church, mm-hmm. um, we do a disservice to our people. And so my goal, um, and this is actually with the, the Fifth Episcopal District of the AME Church's goal, is to actually be present in the community as a community, mm-hmm. as a whole congregation mm-hmm. to be present, whether it's finding a cause and getting behind that, whether it's actually showing up to different events, whether it's, it's adopting um, schools, that's what we did last year, okay. um, was adopt some families at a school and, and pour our love on them for Christmas, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But it has to be uh, bottom up, right? Like right. it can't be, okay, the pastor's going to do this and we're going to follow. It has to be, we're going to do this, pastor. Help us do it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm not the church. Right. I'm just a servant who wants to help y'all figure out how to serve. That's a good insight. Um I'm in, um, I'm, I'm still in, in seminary and right now, uh, I'm in a leadership class and it's these kinds of, of questions of like how to be a pastor, how to be a congregation, um, that, that we're exploring in that, um, it sounds like you've got, you've got it figured out. You've been doing this for a while. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that I haven't figured out. I think that it's, it's one of those things that you learn along the way. Yeah. Would you say, um, has it been? Does that kind does that culture come naturally to to Quinn Chapel uh, in terms of like the people being involved? I don't want you to. I, I think that 
all uh, historically black churches tend to over idealize the pastor. Mm. I think Quinn is on the we don't do that as much anymore edge of that. Um, but I think it's it's part of the culture to to look at the pastor as the leader in a way that the power does not is not shared with the congregation. And so I don't do that well because God is God and I am not, and I'm mm-hmm. not even going to pretend. Um, and so it's it's part of our learning each other is to learn how to walk together and mm-hmm. share the power in a way that you know our discipline doesn't even technically provide for. Very insightful. Uh, well, uh, while you guys were talking, we got a, had a, a phone call, and the caller um, had an interesting question for Brandy. Uh, so he um, say wants to know if you could speak more about where are the inequalities, racial inequalities in the church. He recognizes a lot of inequalities in in society, uh, but wants to know where are the racial inequalities in the church, and what can white men in particular do to resolve or to work against those uh, inequalities towards, towards ending those inequalities? Everywhere. Um, (laughs) I I think uh, Martin Luther King said that the Sunday morning is the most highly segregated hour in the world, Mm -hmm. uh, or at least in the United States, right? There's absolutely that separation there. And, um, one of the things that I think about when we're talking about how to end the inequality is the history of how the AME church decided, no, we're actually going to be separate mm-hmm. from the Methodist Episcopal church was they walked out, they built their own thing and the Methodists were like, okay, but we're going to control it. Mm. And so we're going to send the preachers. We're going to tell you how much you can do. We're going to tell you where to worship. We're going to tell you what you need to be doing in order to be good Methodists. We're going to absolutely control you. Um, and I, I think that when we look at the disparities in the sizes of the churches, when we look at the disparities in the resources of the churches, when we look at just even how we do voyeurism to black churches um, instead of actually being an organic relationship with each other, that's, I think, how those racial disparities play out today. Um, and, and, you know, come visit, Quinn. Don't not visit because I said, don't do voyeurism, but there's a difference between being in relationship with us. There's a difference between, you know, joining a black church and coming and looking to wave and to see what we do over there. Mm. Um, and, and what white men I think can do is to sit and listen to black pastors and take them seriously. And not just me, there's several black churches in Lincoln mm-hmm. um, with several really wonderful pastors who absolutely will open their doors to whoever want to come in and, and sit down and participate in the community. And I think that's where it begins is to be willing to not want to take over, mm. to be willing to not be the authority in the situation, to be willing to be a minority in the church, um, to hear someone else who has less power than you in society, have more power than you in the church and tell you what it means to for them to be in charge and how we're going to work. Thank I hope you. I answered your question. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Um, I think something that we have to work on as uh, white people, it really is that, that listening piece that you've talked about. And I think it's something that um, pastors are or should be taught to do like in general, no matter who they're listening to is to sit is well is to is to listen to listen and not to respond always which um you know i think in situations especially around around hard topics like 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 racism or sexism um we, we we listen to respond and to and we get defensive and we um you know clap back and it's like just i i think part of that is that the privileged have the privilege Mm. of centering their own experiences Mm. and of seeing their experiences as universal. Mm -hmm. And so when someone has an experience that challenges that universal experience, it's scary and it feels threatening. And, and I have to be willing to acknowledge that your experience of the world and of life is absolutely as valid as mine. And that means that my experience isn't universal and that, that, I have to admit Mm -hmm. that I am just human, just like you. Um, And I'm not able to cover the world with who I am. 
Mm. Which again is why BART is absolutely helpful for mm-hmm. dismantling racism. Hmm. That's very it's insightful. Um, so we talked about um, grassroots um, work. Uh, and I think especially for, you know, probably most of the people listening to the show are, are not pastors. They're probably, you know, we, we say laity in the church, which just means people that aren't pastors. Um, so how do you, I guess maybe we've already talked about it, but if there is like one thing, um, I don't know, white Christians could do or just white people in general, or like one thing, you know, uh, people of color could do to, to, to do work for liberation of, of all types that that's theologically grounded in something, I guess, what, what would your uh, advice be? You know, if you could leave people with something. Shut up, listen, and stop looking for absolution. Ah. Um, I don't, if that one thing or three, I'm not quite <laughs> sure. I think um, the theological grounding of that is that there has to be some real repentance and there has to be some real um, moves to create something different. Um, whether it's reparations, whether it's actually dismantling systems and voting for candidates that mm. don't um, reinstitute policies that are harmful mm-hmm. to black and brown communities. But the beginning has to be shutting up, listening, and not looking for ways to make yourself feel better, mm. um, which is what absolution is. I want you to make me feel less guilty mm-hmm. about the role that I'm playing. So if we're shutting up, and listening, and this is people of privilege across the board, shutting up, listening to the marginalized, and then not looking for them to make us feel better, right. then we're actually going to be more willing to actually do the work that it takes. And, and that work is, you know, real concrete things like making sure you vote right, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Uh, in quotes, making sure you vote for candidates that, that have policies that actually help people and not hurt them, right. making sure that the way you spend your money mm-hmm. um, is not building up institutions that are harmful. Um, and, and you can't do that if you're looking to feel better. That's, uh, that's uh, great. Brandy, we have a question uh, online that sort of dovetails to what you just okay. said. I'm going to ask Beth if you'd pick up on that. Caller, are you with us? No. All right. Do we, caller, can you, can you hear us? Oh, one minute. All right, what about now? Hello? Yep, there we go. We've got you. You're on the air. Okay. Um, I can barely hear you. Hi, Brandy. It's Carmen from Waco. Hi, Carmen. How are you? Carmen is an hey. activist in Waco. Yes. Awesome. Uh, um, I, had, I know we've had a, a conversation in the past about allyship and about allies being invited into communities of oppression, whether... Um, it's the LGBT community or the black community rather than somebody who's self-proclaimed uh, kind of like the I'm going to fix your community mentality and mm-hmm. I know what you guys need mm-hmm. and how how that impacts not just the church but society in general. Mm-hmm. You want me to say more about that here? Just kind of, you know, how, how, um, how we've lost the idea that we, whatever community it is, um, they have the answer. We don't need somebody to come in and fix us um, and mm-hmm. have the answers of how we're supposed to do it, um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I think that that does go back to what we were talking about mm-hmm. and to be willing to give up the power, mm-hmm. to give up the the need to universalize your own experience and to be willing to hear um, the experiences and the needs of the people who are more marginalized than you. Um, I think the the need to be con- to be seen as an ally in the modern age, especially by progressives, is is something that is harmful to those communities because it's, it it mostly comes with I know what's best for you. Um, I've read all these books and I'm absolutely certain that this is what you need. Mm. And it and it comes with its own sense of internalized surety mm. um, that is absolutely about making the person who is more privileged, whatever the community is, feel better about themselves. And it doesn't actually do anything for the people that they're supposed to be in alliance with. Mm. Oh. I think that's a really good observation. Uh, thanks for, for helping us tease that out, Carmen. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to add to, to help us tease out or any more questions you have before we, before we go? 
No, I just, like I said, I think that's one of the most important things that's missed in the, in the quote, um, quote unquote progressive community, um, Mm -hmm. uh, is not, is disempowering, Mm -hmm. um, the marginalized community by not letting them have their own voices and people coming in and saying, you know, this is how, these are the answers you need Mm -hmm. to fix your community. And these are the answers you need, um, to gain power rather than giving them the, um, giving the power into that marginalized community themselves and listening rather than, you know, it's kind of like, um, I work a lot with the LGBT community. It's kind of like a room full of straight people telling you, no, that's not a homophobic comment. Um, and not realizing the daily walk I walk through, Mm -hmm. you know, it would be like me as a white person saying to Brandy, no, that's not a racist comment. Mm -hmm. Whereas I haven't walked in her shoes. Um, so I, I think we just need to, right. um, I find that at least here on Waco, Texas, that's, that's part of the conversation we miss a lot. I think it's universal. I and that's too. The, mm-hmm. the need to shut up, sit down, listen, and stop looking to feel better about our roles and, and how we have worked uh, and reified oppression and actually benefited from its existence. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for mm-hmm. calling I, in. Oh, sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye, Carmen. Bye. Thank you so much, Carmen. Um, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. You have been listening to Counterbalance, a progressive Christian talk show hosted by Beth Mendhusen and myself, Richard Randolph. Uh, today, our guest has been the Reverend Brandy Mimics Ryman. Mimics Ryan. Mimics Ryan. Say it again. Mimics Ryan. Mimics Ryan. I'm going to try really hard to get that. Right. We would love to have you come back, Brandy, and continue this conversation. Um, be sure to, to tune in, everyone, to, uh, next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. for another edition of Counterbalance. Until then, have a wonderful week and keep your radio tuned to KZUM 89.3 FM and KZUM HD.